All right, we are, as Stephen Piercy would warble back in the early days, we are back for more Inappropriate Earl. Yeah! And we have a very special guest. You know, I, I try and interview some of my comedy friends, but they don't exactly draw big numbers for me. So I have to go into the celebrity world. We've had Stephen Piercy, Bobby Brown, David Arquette. This man could probably do all of their voices. Which uh, comedians have you had on so far? I mean, fame, well, let me get to your intro first. Uh, okay. I, I met this man once, uh, 2007, I think, in the food tent at Rocklahoma. He probably doesn't remember it. He's uh, one of the best comics going today. Uh, his uh, impressions are second to none, but he's also got great material. Please put your grubby little rat and roll hands together for Mr. Craig Gass. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, rat and rollers everywhere. And by the way, these are, I, I know you notice what are on my microphone. I didn't know if you'd be into it, uh, is Stephen Piercy's mic knuckles. Did Stephen, wait a minute, how'd you get those? Oh, well, I met him at the parking lot of a uh, UPS store in the Valley, and uh, he gave me a couple. And uh, Are you serious? Yeah, he was great. I wish. Is I that would've... the first time you ever met him? Yeah, he didn't know who I was. So I contacted him on Twitter, and I said, hey man, big fan, I'd love to buy your mic knuckles for my comedy. And he said, meet me at this uh, UPS store. And, and he uh, came. And he's like, are you Earl? And like, oh, that's my favorite singer of all time. So No way. You contact Stephen Piercy by Twitter. Well, you could definitely tell he runs his own Twitter. You know, yeah. the language. And, and Still, guys are, people can be standoffish. And you say, hey, I'm a dude who just really likes you a lot. And I just want to, do you mind if I grab this thing from you? And he actually makes the arrangement and meets you someplace to... To get you that thing. That's nuts. And he was incredibly nice. Uh, took me a while to get him on the podcast. You know, yeah. I'm sure people are like, who Who the fuck are you? Yeah. If and Twitter get, was around in 1985, there's no fucking way Stephen Pierce is going to come meet you at the UPS store. No, no. He, well, you know, times are, you know, uh, a changing. Yeah. And, I mean, I got Bobby Brown on here. Isn't it weird to you how all these guys that we admired uh, growing up, uh, there's like a shift where musicians really respect comedians like everybody kind of respects comedians they're not obviously rock stars but there's a tremendous respect for comedians and like musicians will come to comedy shows and and like there was a time when david e roth was way the fuck ahead of the curve he was you had to follow his lead he was the coolest motherfucker on the planet and we were all following his lead and I remember the change for me happened when he started quoting Dennis Miller jokes in appearances. He would quote his favorite uh, lines from comedians, and he quoted Dennis Miller a lot. And he'd say, you know, it's just like, you know, Dennis Miller says, you know, when you got to do this thing, you know, whatever his, like, version of a Dennis Miller joke was. And, uh, and I remember thinking, like, fuck, man, that guy was, like, that guy was the guy to be quoted, and now he's quoting people, you know? I mean, what happened to him? Now he looks like Carol Channing. I mean, I think that it's, uh, it's weird because, you know, everyone was partying. So, of course, as uh, easily influenced kids, we were partying. And, uh, uh, and I think some people just paint themselves into a corner where it's like, even though they might want to quit and they think, fuck, this, this isn't working for me. I, I, I can't I can't enjoy doing drugs anymore. They, they still feel like they have to because they're rock stars and people are like, come on, man, you're the you're fucking you're Mr. Rockstar. You got to keep doing this. And they just do it until their fucking wheels go off. <laughs> it's just, you know, and sometimes it's a it's a fucking bummer. Like it bums me out personally. That Janie Lane died in a comfort inn uh, with loneliness and whatever despair he was feeling from his alcoholism. That really bums me the fuck out. That well, I mean, Bobby Brown in her book, uh, she, uh, you know, I always wondered why a guy would be that bummed out. I mean, he was a great songwriter and, and performer, and she alluded to possible uh, molestation by a uh, famous rock star. Uh, when he was younger, so uh, you know that's I can imagine that, that's quite a uh, cross to bear. Yeah, that Janie was molested. That Janie was uh, molested by uh, she never named the guy, and uh, she definitely didn't want to talk about it when she was here. And that young man grew up to be Paul Stanley from Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, Janie, um, uh, I didn't know that, but I know that you know there's that there's that soundbite that went. Uh, went around for a while 
of uh, VH1 was doing some kind of show about uh, 80s rock stars. And uh, there's that moment where Janie Lane talks about how I was talking about this with a musician like two or three weeks ago, like a musician who's like really big right now. And I can't remember who it was, but I was talking to somebody who's like really successful right now. We were talking about Janie Lane and talking about how he um, in this interview, he talked about how Uncle's Tom Cabin, Uncle Tom's Cabin was supposed to be the name of the record. Right. And Uncle Tom's Cabin is one that even musicians are like, that's a great fucking oh, song. Sure. That's a, and a lot of rock fans look at that and go, all right, there's some depth there. This is a really cool song. So that was supposed to be the first single. I don't know if that was the name of the album, but I know it was the first single. It was going to be Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the label said, well, you don't have any kind of, we, we, we need an anthem. We need something. And he's like, well, this, you know, I, I feel really proud of this. And like, we need an anthem. And he gave in to their demands and said, all right. And he wrote Cherry Pie, I think, in an hour, he said. In a bathroom on a pizza box cover. Okay. Wrote it in an hour, right? Yeah. I, I don't think it took that long. I mean, Bobby Brown said it took him 20 minutes. I, wow. I don't know if I believe that, but. Okay. So he wrote it. He just kind of shit it out really quick. Uh, gave it to the guy. The guy's like, this is it. And then suddenly that's the name of the album. Suddenly that's the name of the tour. Every city, they're doing uh, cherry pie eating contests in every city uh, to get backstage. And Janie Lane says, and I could just blow my fucking brains out every time I think about it. And it's like, wow, Jesus Christ. I, I think the thing that he suffered from, uh, in my opinion, is that he didn't have a sense of humor about himself. And it's very healthy to be able to go, hey, you know what? That was it. Cherry pie guy, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean... Like, there's nothing that's more... That diffuses a situation more than owning what you were and being able to laugh about it. I think that was the coolest thing about Millie Vanilli is that they actually made a TV commercial where they're performing and the tape stops and they don't know what to do. Like, they were laughing at themselves. Yeah, I mean... And I wish that Janie Lane had done that, you know? I mean, he was such a serious guy from what I gather and... and I think he fancied himself a, a serious musician, which he was. But, yeah, and he was know. a great. He was absolutely a great songwriter. He found himself stuck in a niche that he thought he couldn't get out of. Um, he kind of, you know, he felt really bad about the way that whole genre of music was starting to get looked at after 1992. It was awful. And um, and he he really he couldn't laugh at it. He was just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm that guy. Yeah, and I it's mean, like, why not just, you know, I mean, he was eventually going to come out of it. And I know that he was struggling and, you know, I, I ran into him and I knew that he was trying, uh, I know we exchanged phone numbers and, and, uh, but then I'd call him and, and he would never return the call and yeah. So it's I mean, a bummer. Well, you know, that's why I kind of like kiss, you know, Gene, and I'm not. At, I'm not going to ask you to do the. Imp I'm sure you. Of get course. But I mean, I'm sure. Dude, I'm get not going to hang out here and not do Gene and Paul and. F come on, man. But I mean, that's why I. I kind of like Gene because he he doesn't take himself seriously. Yeah. Oh, holy shit. I'm a whore. I, I want to put my name on any fucking product I can. Invent. Okay. First of all, for anybody who doesn't know, um, I'm a stand-up comedian who I'm mostly known for doing voices, right? And. Uh, I do impressions of people that nobody wants to do. I know. Jeez. Right? Like uh, you know, like nobody else is doing Sam Kinison, you know, where you go like uh and people and people have done Sam Kinison, but I just always love that that voice where you go, wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. I thought this guy was dead. <laughs> oh, oh Jesus. Jesus. Uh but uh um uh, Gene Simmons, I, I had this impression. Uh, I was on the Howard Stern Show about a... I've been doing stuff for the Howard Stern Show since 1995. In 2001, I sat next to Howard to audition to be his sidekick. And all I would do for that year is I would chime in as different celebrities and say awful shit. Like, I just thought it'd be funny if, like, say, Christopher Walken would chime in and do a really, really inappropriate joke and go, that's great, you know what, Howard... That reminds me of a great joke. What do you call a fat Chinese guy? A chunk. Pow. That's a great joke. Or, uh, you know, um, if we had um, 
a really vapid actress in the studio. It'd be fun to ch- chime in as Al Pacino and go, boy, you are a real fucking moron. Hoo or whatever. But I had this impression of Gene Simmons. The impression wasn't funny until I came up with a funny angle. The funny angle was every time we had a music guest in the studio, I thought it would be funny to constantly interrupt the music guests as Gene Simmons and try to sell them shitty Kiss products. And, um, and I fucked with everybody that came in, whether it was John Bon Jovi. I remember Tommy Lee was on the phone. Ted Nugent was in the studio. The Insane Clown Posse. It could be rappers. It could be anybody. I just kept telling them, but it's because of Kiss, right? Am I right? And I would, I would draw all these dumb fucking parallels to Kiss and then offer them Kiss products. Uh, for it was, it was really stupid. But the weird thing was, and we didn't know this at the time, the real Gene Simmons actually started getting hate mail and people started yelling at the real Gene Simmons on the street for all the awful shit that I was saying to people. And uh, the first I heard of it was, uh, I wish I could remember this guy's name. There was a guy I met backstage at a concert at the PNC Amphitheater in New Jersey who was the manager of this band ZO2. And he said, hey man, um, Somebody said, hey, this guy who works with ZO2, he he does something with Kiss, and he, he really wants to meet you. And I was like, no way. And I was really fired up. And the guy said, yeah, man, I uh, you know I first heard about you. Uh, I started getting tapes from Paul, and Paul was like, you got you to gotta hear this guy. And he was sending me all those tapes. And I was like, oh, man, that's fucking awesome. Who's Paul? What is Paul? Who's Paul? What, is, what does Paul do? And he goes, Paul Stanley. And I go, Paul Stanley knows who I am? And he goes, right. and I'll never forget this. He goes, dude. Paul and everyone in the band loves when anybody makes fun of Gene. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, he loves it. And he had specific quotes that he said, I've never heard you say this, but, but Paul said that one time you said this and one time, and he nailed it. He actually was telling me exact quotes of material that I had done on the show. And I was like, I was floored. And then, uh, and then Gene showed up at the Howard Stern show to confront me. About my impression of him. Now, is this the one where you were in full makeup? That was the second appearance. The first time he came in just to confront me about the impression. And when he walked in, it was it was a little tense. Because um, all I would do, again, is I would just say, you know, anytime something came up, and it could be really fucked up, I guess. I, I barely remember this, but Gene quoted a moment where we had Suzanne Summers in the studio. And apparently I said that Kiss invented cancer. <laughs> I said... Uh, and by the way, we have a cure for cancer. Kiss has a cure for cancer, but it'll cost you. Go to kissonline.com. <laughs> and then I offered her a lunch pail, a Kiss lunch pail. And so Gene came in. He had some words with me. But then he said, uh, I didn't come here to talk about people who think they're funny. I came here to talk about something very serious and something that's never been done before in rock and roll. If you go to kissonline.com and he started selling us shit he started selling us kiss products and i was like what the fuck is he serious and he was and he tried to sell us a kiss casket and and he was serious at one point howard said all right gene uh, hold on when you say i have a casket for sale like like you're just being funny right like you're doing what craig does like you're you're just being silly you don't really sell caskets do you and he said of course i do it's a real Kiss casket. It's got a beautiful Kiss logo. It's $5,000. And not only can you be buried in it, get this. It also doubles as an ice cooler. And I was like, so I started jumping into a sales pitch as him. Right. And saying, you know what else has never been done before in rock and roll? For $1 million, I will throw my guitar player, Ace Freely, into the casket. And you can spend eternity spooning. With Kiss. And he kept going, hey, you shut up. No, you shut up. Hey, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. And everyone at home was like, who the fuck is talking? Like, right. nobody knew what the fuck was going on. So it was fun, man. Well, it's not, your impressions don't just sound like them, but you have their uh, their dialect and their bullshit. Like, the Paul Stanley is, you know, what was the thing he well, said about Kiss staying for the dinner and the role? Yes, there's, well, there's two levels of Paul Stanley. There's, there's Paul Stanley in interviews. Where uh, and I love the thing about Paul and Gene. When you're a teenager, 
when you're insecure and you can see somebody who's cool and super fucking secure, that's awesome. And those guys were like, I remember an interview with them. I saw a clip of them in Japan uh, where I think it was the reunion tour when they got the four original members back in, in makeup. And somebody lobbed the biggest softball. Why is Kiss so amazing? And that was the question. Why, why? is Kiss so amazing? Why, why are you so amazing? And Paul Stanley goes, you know, a lot of bands are envious of Kiss. And I mean... I'm envious of Kiss. <laughs> it was like, and then there was also the Rock Against Drugs. Um, they had a 30-minute infomercial, Rock Against Drugs. And there's a moment where Paul Stanley is like in a bed with like 30 hot chicks, right? And they go, oh, no, I, th I think he was standing. I remember the bed was something else. Uh, the bed was, like, was the video. The video. That's right. Yes, dude. We're such geeks. We always know this. The Kiss bed, Exposed. Kiss Exposed. Where, where they're sitting up by the pool. In what's supposed to be the Kiss Mansion, where the the doorbell rings and it's and it's a Kiss song. And the the interviewer, who was a very funny comic, uh, Mark Blankfield. Oh wow! He was uh, on the cast of Fridays, which was oh you know, wow, SNL's. wow. And uh, he stumbles into the bedroom and he asks him what the girls' names are, and so he goes, <laughs> Carol number one. Carol number two, <laughs> Carol number three, Carol number four, and Carol number five. And Mark goes, oh, so I guess you could say you went caroling. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst joke. Well, I remember seeing an interview where they go, they go, uh, why is you know Kiss so amazing? They do that thing. And then there's a Rock Against Drug thing where Paul Stanley, um, they're, and I know they're very anti-drugs. And Paul looks right in the camera and says... You know, if you're a girl and you have an opportunity to be with me, why would you want to ruin such a bombastic moment with drugs and alcohol to take away what I'm about to give you? That's like, <laughs> that's an awesome amount of confidence. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then there's Paul Stanley on stage, which is a totally different, like, you know, I saw him in Las Vegas. Where I was really blown away by this by this rap that he did in Las Vegas where he went, All right, people, now listen. You know, this is in Las Vegas. It was Kiss and Aerosmith. He goes, you know, I know this town is known for its buffets. And I can tell you right now that I see a lot of people in the front row that I really want to eat. And then he started tussling his hair. <laughs> and then I mentioned it to like two or three guys who work for Kiss. Uh, towards the end of the tour, I saw the same show at Madison Square Garden, and I brought a bunch of comedians, Steve Byrne, Jeff Ross, and Jim Norton. And I brought them to the concert and uh, was introducing the guys to the crew. And and uh, and then a couple guys who I mentioned, hey, did you hear what he said in Vegas about I want to eat the front row or whatever? And three different guys said, did you hear what he said in Kansas? And I said, no. It's either Kansas or Oklahoma where he said, all right, people, now listen. You know, I know that this state is known for its Angus beef. And I can tell you right now that after this show, I'm going to want to sink my teeth into some meat. And the whole crowd went, what? And then he realized what he said. He said, now hold on, hold on, hold on. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about a thigh. Or a rump roast. And the whole crowd went, what? Or a dick. And apparently, apparently all the guitar techs were in the back like going, the fuck is he talking about? You know? But uh, yeah, I mean, Paul is just a, a really, uh, he's an enigma. I mean, there is that effeminate side to him, but I mean, he's clearly very hetero. I mean, you know... I don't care if he uh, is with dudes or not. Yep. I mean, I think it's the same thing with him and David Lee Roth. Like, they've had so many women that it, they probably have to stick their dicks in cheese graters just to get off. <laughs> so why not have a guy blow you? you I do, mean... You do have to wonder, like, how... Yeah, the monotonous of that. Um, I'm sure you've done all right for, for yourself. There's uh, been moments in my life where I've overdone everything and I've gotten bored. Because, uh, and I'm not, it, it's just about wanting to live a certain type of lifestyle. And when you commit to it, you can do it. You can certainly find your way into it. And then I just started to feel really empty and just like 
fuck, you know, it just, uh, and, it, and it does become monotonous, uh, drugs and everything. You can overdo everything. So you've been headlining for what, 15 years, 20? I mean, I've been making a full-time living. I've been paying my mom's bills for 14 years, uh, since 2000, like right before I got on the Howard Stern show, I was writing, I was doing some writing for a weekend update. Uh, the gigs were coming together enough that I was just making ends meet. And I quit my last job at a supermarket. I never finished high school. And I went to high school for a long fucking time. I, I really could not pay attention to save my life. But in 2000, I'd been doing comedy for seven years at that point. And uh, the girl I was dating at the time said, you know, you're so miserable at this place that you're at. And you're kind of pulling it together. You should just quit. And I took a leap of faith. And I, I floated for a while, and then I got on the Howard Stern show, and that changed everything. And that led to uh, TV gigs, and and then I really thought it was going to dry up after they, they narrowed it down to me and Artie, and they gave Artie the job. And then I was like, all right, so I guess it's over for me. And then, But I started getting all these acting gigs, and Sex and the City, and King of Queens, and, and now Family Guy, and so it's working. So I mean, luckily. how do you deal with that kind of rejection of getting so close to, I mean, that's got to be one of the top gigs. And It didn't, but I wasn't of the mindset that I wanted the gig. I don't think I was, I didn't really, it, I'm not the same mentality. I don't have the same kind of, uh, uh, and there's a, it, it's very clicky, and I didn't fit into the click. The Stern know? Show? Yeah, the Stern Show. Like, I got in as, like, as far as, like, Howard, Howard absolutely supported me. Howard absolutely was like, you know, I want to make this work. And there were times when it wasn't working and I would fall victim to uh, like I would like I couldn't believe that people were talking about me online and I could go in and, and see shit online. And that would affect what I was doing on the show. And I remember a couple of times. Well, there was one time that Howard had an idea and he said, hey, when this next guy comes in, you want to do this and this. And I go, ah, oh, man, I don't know if I want to do that again. I, I was kind of thinking maybe we'll go in this direction. He goes, really? If, if that, well, if that's what you feel, then. Then let's do that. So I went in a different direction. And after the show, he was like, you know, I think it would have been better if we did what we normally do. And I said, yeah, but I was on this website. And he goes, oh, my God, don't fuck. Like, he flipped out and was like, don't read that shit. It'll fuck with your head. It'll and and it it'll change everything. And it, and it won't be the truth. It's just it's whatever somebody feels. And you can't let that criticism get to you. And then Gary walked in in the middle of that conversation and he was like, you know, Gary will tell you. And Gary was like, yeah, there's times that I'll be like, I'll put together a best of and I'll have like a best of. I've been working on it for like for like literally like two weeks. And then people will like and then I'll read it and people will be like, what the fuck? Did they spend like 20 minutes on those fucking things? <laughs> it's fucking fucked up. They'll fucking tell you. I mean, they'll, they're fucking, you know, they, they don't, they'll just fucking, they're brutal, you know. Because Stern and, fans, I would imagine, are, are almost like, metal fans like they're like they're, oh, there's a lot suck and uh, you know if they don't like you they they just rip into you just to rip into you well howard built a career on ripping into people so that's the kind of and that's that was the funniest thing to me is that howard built a career on destroying people and then he would he would reach it online and be like who are these monsters and right. like that's your money that's the shit that you're into and he, he always had this thing about you know, how come, you know, we're, how come people don't treat us like we're the Letterman show? And it's like, cause you're a different type of show. You're, you're not like a show that caters to people's egos. You, you like to rip egos down and you like to be real and be honest, you know? And sometimes you're fucking brutal and that's, that's what you got in your audience is people who are fucking brutal. You well, know? I also think Letterman didn't have a guy like Daniel Carver on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with the, yeah. It yeah, was my some, favorite of all time. Really, Daniel Cover? Just because he really like. <laughs> obviously, he's saying incredibly awful things. Yeah. But he he, I don't think he realized how I was making fun of him. Yeah. Well. Or did he? Well, that was the thing. Well, there. Okay, there was one time that uh, Howard, uh, for a sketch idea, uh, Howard had a KKK outfit, and. Um, to which Daniel is like, oh, you have one of those outfits. And they go, yeah. And he's like, oh. Like, he thought, like, all right, well, we got more in common than I thought. Like, he thought that they right. had the KKK outfit because they were all clans. I mean, I remember they had a, a <laughs> Hollywood Squares. Uh, yes, yes. And they put 
Daniel Carver in the center square next to Chingy, the rapper, and it was just... Like... <laughs> yeah, there was some really uh, surreal shit on that show, and it's it's still huge. It's still, uh, even on satellite, uh, the last um, I think the last two times I've been on the show, I've been the number two and then the number one most searched thing on the internet that day uh, right. on Google Trends, and... It's uh, yeah, he's he still has a massive audience and he's he's a master of the media. I mean, he's got oh, it. He's got it all figured out. Now, are you allowed to go on Opie? And, well, I guess there's only one of them now. Do you go on that show at all or no? Uh, I'm going to start going on next year. Uh, I used to be worried about it. Uh, but now that that thing's been broken down and which one is left? Because uh, I don't listen. Anthony. To... Oh, OK, he's Anthony got fired. And Jim Norton, who's one of the funniest comedians on the planet, oh, he's awesome. Is uh, I mean, it's amazing how a guy can be so vicious and articulate with his anger and hostility, and also be one of the silliest fucking goofballs. He's just a goofy fucking guy. I love that guy, and his his material. I think he really is our uh, modern day George Carlin. He's just uh, he's a a wordsmith, and he's. Uh, He's just he's brutal and brilliant and um, and it's crazy. It's weird to me that like that uh, that I uh, hang out with guys who I respect so much. Right. Or I get to share the stage with guys that I respect so much because it's I'm such a fan of comedy. It's yeah. weird to me. Well, it's like I what I love about Jim is like my ex girlfriend manages Motorhead, and whenever he was in L.A., he'd ask me to get him tickets and. He would walk around backstage like a little kid, like, "Hey, Earl, can I get, can I take Lemmy's picture?" And it's like, oh, yeah. like here's this huge comic who, like, I was starstruck of because I admired him so much, and it's like here it was him acting like a little kid because he wanted to meet Lemmy. I've taken him to a couple concerts, and I definitely gotten that vibe from him. And I, uh, he loves taking pictures with celebrities. Dude, I got the best story ever at Madison. This is somewhere on his website, which I know used to be eataBullet.com. I don't know if that's still the website. I think he changed the name of it. But if you go to Jim Norton's website and go deep into his archives, you can find this picture from about 10 years ago, which was uh, backstage at, a, at that Kiss Aerosmith concert that I took Jeff Ross Jim Norton and Steve Byrne too. Uh, we're at the concert. Somebody from Kiss that works for Kiss comes up to me and says, uh, "Hey, Craig, um, the band is doing a special uh, uh, photo session with fans who have paid for a VIP experience. <laughs> thousand bucks. And yeah, it's a, normally a thousand dollars to get your picture taken. If you want, I can have you guys get in line and have your picture taken with the band in makeup." And I was like, uh, and so I turn around, and before I can even finish the question, Jim Norton's eyes are really wide. He goes, yes, I, yes, please. Oh, yes, please. I'm like, all right, let's go. You guys want to do it? Okay, let's go get a picture with Kiss. So we go to take our picture with Kiss. I got to find that somewhere, man. So uh, before we get to the front of the line, Jim goes, do you guys mind if I take my own picture? And I go, oh, you want to have one by yourself? I'm like, I'm, yeah, I don't care. And so Jim's super excited. He walks up and he goes, gentlemen. He walks over. <laughs> Paul Stanley has no shirt on. Okay? Right. Jim Norton stands in front of Paul Stanley. Paul does this really funny, like, wrestling move where he goes, come here. You know, I bet. You know, and he, he, he grabs Jim Norton by the neck. He wraps his arm around Jim Norton's neck, right? Jim Norton, without even thinking about what this would look like, holds uh, Paul's arm. And leans back to nuzzle into his chest. <laughs> like he just kind of like, he didn't realize how ridiculous it was going to look. But somewhere this ridiculous fucking picture of Jim Norton with Kiss exists. I, I love that shit. I love that. man. I mean, we're all fans. Yeah, of course, man. And that genre of music, it's just, it's weird to me. Like in my lifetime, nothing has been as big. As metal was in the 80s and 90s. Oh, I mean, Nothing. I mean, once a month, I was living in Tucson, Arizona, which is where I moved to from New York. And and in my teenage years, I'm living in Tucson in this tiny little arena in this tiny town. Once a month, we would have a major, major concert of uh, whether it was uh, Ozzy or Bon Jovi or Dio 
or uh, the Scorpions. But once a month, we had a massive arena concert coming to town. And you don't see that anymore. You don't see like like uh, big tours like that. And they could all sell. Motley Crue, Rat, Metallica. Every one of them could sell and fill up an arena. And uh, and you don't see that anymore. And it's it's kind of weird to see... You know, you think as a kid, like, oh, man, these guys, these guys are monsters. They're going to be around forever. And it's weird to see how, as time goes on, fighting that goes on. And, and then as the band started breaking up and then going to other bands, it's like, really? Wow, it's kind of, you know, as a fan, you're like, come on, man, keep it together for the fans. But, you know, now as an adult and having traveled with other comedians, I, c- I can kind of get it. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> you know? everybody has different levels of communication skills you know well i mean i could see uh piercy and blots are maybe not being the two uh most uh personalities <laughs> that would mesh well on the road have you ever traveled with other comedians you just could not stand to be around i mean for for like the last four or five years it was me rob schneider and jeff richards yeah. so you know that's a eclectic group yeah it is but we got along great yeah and then, uh, did you do a lot of international shows with them a lot of Canadian things, but I never, uh, you know, Rob's huge in like, uh, not Portugal, but uh, I don't know, one of those wacky countries like where he's like a guy, he's like David Hasselhoff was in Germany. He's really? Just, uh, like he'll, he'll do like an arena? Oh, uh, he'll do a stadium or, you mm-hmm. know, like a four or 5,000 seater and, and sell it out instantly. Really? So I forget, uh, something with a P, but... Uh, <laughs> but he's a great guy. He was always nice to me. Wow, now I'm wondering what that is. Portugal, not Portugal, Peru. Uh, not, it's uh, uh, some you know. Just they roll out the red carpet for him. It's like they stop people, take off work, and like I never got to do those gigs. But wow, because uh, you know there's not many people on on his level in terms of like movies. You know, actors doing comedy. I mean, like with that name recognition. So I got curious these last few years to go out and do shows in like um, uh, internationally. Right. And I remember uh, doing a show one night, and Russell Peters was at the oh. Laugh Factory, and Russell is just crushing everywhere. And uh, he does theaters and arenas all over the world, and it's almost all exclusively his career has been built on YouTube videos. Uh, just filming his YouTube videos, putting them online, and that guy went straight to arenas. Yeah, I mean, he plays, uh, I know he's uh, from, I think he's from Toronto, and he plays where the Maple Leafs play. Yeah. And, and sells out. He did the O2 Arena in London a month after Led Zeppelin did a reunion show there. I mean, that's that's fucking insane. And he's a big Kiss fan. He is. He is. I actually, I remember introducing him to somebody that worked with Kiss, and they were about to go to Australia. Russell was about to go to Australia. And I was like, well, you guys meet up when you get out there, and I'll give you guys your, each other's numbers. And um, but and he's hardcore. Like, he's not like he could, he could actually tell you some Kiss trivia that, like, he can show that he's not kidding. Um, but Russell and I were at the Laugh Factory one night, and he came up to me and said, uh, he goes, dude, your impressions, man, you – like, have you ever traveled internationally? And I said, you know what? I actually was going to talk to you about that tonight because I was going to say, if you ever want somebody to come with you to do some international dates, I'd like to come with you. And he said, what do you think about India? And I said, what else you got uh, besides anything with, anything with India? Only because I've heard, I've only known two or three people who have gone to India, uh, one of which was a buddy of mine who was from India. His family was from India. And they all told me, like, it's it's not an easy adjustment. There's as soon as you get off the plane at the airport, you smell. And even Russell did a joke about it on stage. He he said, if you've never been to India, uh, put your fingers into some horse shit and take the horse shit and stuff it in your nose. That's what it's like being in India. The smell is overwhelming. Lovely. Yeah. So uh, so Russell took me. Where did he take me? Uh, Oh, we just did some shows on on both coasts. But I did go and start doing international shows and, and kind of checking it out. And it was fun. Um, but I also need to focus on doing shit here in the States. So. Well, I mean, he's, uh, I remember the first conversation we had about Kiss. He said, do you know who Vincent Cusano is? And I thought, wow. I mean, come on, man. That's Vinny, wow. Vin- That's Vinny Vincent's real name. Wow. Homie. So I was like, well, this guy knows his shit. That's pretty crazy, man. Is there anyone that... Um, over the years that you really uh, like 
held up in such high esteem that really just bums you out now to know that it's like the facade is gone because of what you know about them? Well, I did. It's nothing music related, but I'm a big Bruce Lee fan. And uh, of course, Enter the Dragon is like, uh, that's like the stairway to heaven of karate movies. It's just, uh, and I saw John Saxon at my doctor's office once and he was a very good looking guy with a gambling problem in the movie. And I'm like, oh, Mr. Saxon, Enter the Dragon is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Can, Can I have your autograph? And he's like, I don't have the time, kid. And this guy literally hadn't been in a movie since Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> so that's kind of a, was a bummer. That and, is a bummer. But, you know what? Uh, who, Rusty Dooley, is that his name? The yeah. comic? Rusty Dooley's got a really funny thing about being in his neighborhood. And he ran into Dolph Lundgren at a, at a, like a fucking KFC or something. Right. And he was like, Dolph, oh my God. I live two blocks from here. If I grab my copy of Rocky three or four, will you sign it? And he's like, what? And he goes, just stay here. I'll be right back. And he goes running down to his house. And Dolph, I guess Dolph said, oh, yeah, I'll wait for you. So uh, he runs all the way back to his place and all the way back to the location where he saw Dolph Lundgren. And Dolph's getting in his car and driving out onto the road. (laughs) And Rusty actually chased the car on the road and was not. And then at the next red light, he was like pounding on the window and scared Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> and he goes, Hey man, I got this thing. And, and Dolph goes, Oh, and he, and he signed it and then handed it back to him. And he was like, thank you. Thank you. And the car drives away. And it isn't until he gets home that he sees that he wrote on the DVD. I will destroy you. <laughs> <laughs> he actually said his fucking line. Well, that's a good. Uh, that would make me more of a fan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you ever come across? I mean, you've met hundreds, thousands of celebrities. Was there one that was kind of a dick? Well, in radio, I worked in radio, and and you meet everybody in radio coming up or coming down, and and um, and they always put on their best, you know, face when they when they come out there because uh, they're usually selling something, right? And so everyone that they see in the building, they're super nice to. Because they're here to sell, yeah. And um, um, very rarely are they ever grumpy. I did have a, a, a fortunate experience with Gene when, as a fan. I met him as a fan. He came into a radio show that I was doing in Seattle called Bob Rivers Twisted Radio. And um, I wanted to do this. They were in town doing, I don't know, of course you remember, they did the Kiss Convention Tour. Yeah, absolutely. Where Paul and Gene, uh, they, they set up an, uh, an exhibition hall to just be an all-day KISS convention that they oversaw. And at the end of the day, the band came up and took questions. They did a Q&A, then they did an acoustic show. And it was $100 a ticket. I did not have $100. So, uh, but Gene was coming in to promote it. And I was going to go um, into the next room of the studio and call in to Sam Kinison, calling in live from hell, to tell Gene that there was a bunch of KISS fans in hell and that there's these KISS tribute bands in hell. And I had this whole thing that Gene kept interrupting and creating more material. He said, oh, let me guess. I, I'm sure, is it Satan that plays me on the bass? And I said, uh, no, but it's um, actually Jeffrey Dahmer. That's the thing where he, he, he loves to impersonate you, and, he, and then he'll spit up the blood, and he'll pull out his tongue, and then the tongue will fall out of his mouth, and you go, oh, that's not his tongue! Oh, oh! <laughs> and whatever interaction we had it stretched out into a way funnier piece and a way longer piece because of gene and gene had a great sense of humor about it and i heard through the grapevine that gene really liked it that he wanted to get a copy of it so i went to a kiss concert a couple years later and called doc mcgee and said my name is craig gas i'm a comedian and uh i heard that gene wanted to get a copy of this is okay if i come to the show doc goes yeah come on down i'm gonna leave you tickets and backstage passes and i'm like right on i go to the show Got my tickets. Uh, after the show, I see Gene standing in front of his dressing room. And I'm like, all right, but there's a bunch of fans there. Right. And so I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I go, Gene? And he looks over in my direction, and I go, hey, do you remember um, when you were in Seattle and Sam Kinison called into your appearance? And he said, was that you? And I go, it, it was. Uh, my name's Craig, and uh, I, I got you a copy of it. Here's a cassette of the, um, uh, there's, uh, okay, so, 
it's me and you is the first track and then there's a thing i did with paulie shore which is pretty funny right. uh that's the second track there's another thing i did with dennis leary um and then the flip side of it is the howard stern show because i'm working with howard stern now and he interrupted me and said i'm gonna stop you right there what am i supposed to be doing with all of this information you're giving me and Everyone started heckling me that was there. They were like, yeah, tell him, Gene, he's a fag. And I was like, what the fuck? I go, well, I, I thought you'd appreciate the tape, so thanks, man. And I just walked away. I was really bummed out. And then there's people who you'll meet who you'll have like little or no respect for who are so cool to you that you'll defend them for right. the rest of your life because you're like, I know that guy has a reputation of being whatever, as being of having like a less than respectful career. But you know what? That guy's cool as shit. And every time I see him, he's super fucking cool. And you'll defend those guys for the rest of your life. But um, um, I always remember hearing this story at a radio station that Huey Lewis did this super cool thing where uh, he was hanging out with some kid who was like an intern. He said, hey, um, you know, the kid said, hey, do you mind if I get an autograph? He goes, yeah, when I get done, do you mind waiting? And then. Uh, Huey's tour manager came and said, Huey, we gotta go! And he, and he took him in a limo and they took off. And then this kid was like, oh man, I was gonna get an autograph. And, and he's really bummed out. 30 minutes later, the limo comes back in. They were supposed to go to the airport. And Huey comes running out of the limo and says, man, I'm really sorry. And he, he, he like signs like four pieces of paper. He's like, here, 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 here. I'm sorry. I told you. Right. He's like, I, I forgot we were on our way and then I realized we forgot about you, but you know. And then, he, and then he runs back in the limo and takes off. And I was like, that's awesome. That's really, really awesome. Now, yeah. what got you into the metal? Because uh, I know you're a big metal head. Big. The very first song without I was into "Physical" by Olivia, Olivia Newton John. Great video. Uh, Centerfold by Jay Giles Band. And then I remember my mom driving me to school. I was running late and I missed the bus, and she had to take me to school. And I had the rock station on KLPX in Tucson, Arizona. When the I just heard this. And then this vocal was like, and I was like, what the fuck is that? Nice melodic voice. Yeah, it was like, bang your head. And every crease of these lyrics were fucking precision lyrics. And it was like, and it was just, I was so hooked. I was so absolutely hooked. I and think, I mean, a lot of people don't realize how big Quiet Riot was at, at that point. The biggest. And the tough thing is that Kevin Dubrow was fully aware of it. Yeah. Uh, he was fully, and he was right. He was absolutely right that they started it. Quiet Riot absolutely started the entire thing. They kicked off everything. And But Kevin Dubrow had a thing about letting everybody know... Hey, we start. I mean, yes, there was Black Sabbath. Yes, there was Ozzy. There was, but what started this whole '80s thing that specifically targeted me and everyone my age was Quiet Riot. It was Bang Your Head. It was Come On, Feel the Noise. Bang Your Head, and it was the first heavy metal hard rock album to go to number one. I mean, not even Zeppelin did that. Not even Zeppelin, which is crazy. Yeah, and I remember. You know what? It's funny you say that. This is how fucking stupid I was at 14 years, 13 years old. 1983, this album comes out. And at 13, I remember getting an argument with some stoner kids who were older than me. And I was like, quite right. I just remember saying, quite right. It's the greatest fucking, like, biggest rock band of all time. And they're like, dude, Led Zeppelin is the biggest rock band of all time. And I go, no quite right. And they got a bit like they all wanted to beat the shit out of me. Somehow I got out of getting my ass kicked. But I was that delusional in my mind at that time that I thought, like, because Quiet Riot was opening the door to me. and Like, they just galvanized everyone that was my age. And then when Motley Crue came along, I was like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. And then Motley Crue just took it to, you know, it was like an image. It was music. It was an image. It was like, you well, know. It was uh, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, and Rat yep. all around the same time. Yeah. And then, uh, and then somehow, Quiet Riot didn't quite hit the same kind of like level that Motley Crue sustained for so many years. Rat, uh, not as big as Motley Crue, but Rat got pretty big, did some arena tours, but Motley Crue just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and they just they became 
you know, they were the ones to to take down. Well, know? I think uh, I forget who their manager was, but you know, like Rad had a chance to be on the Top Gun soundtrack, and I think they turned it down to do Eddie Murphy's Golden Child. Wow, I remember you telling me that. So it's like uh, whoever there, I think it really had to do with who was managing you. You know, in terms of getting you the connections, the breaks. I mean, Quiet Riot's manager was uh, probably not the brightest dude in the world. I mean, wow, they flamed out pretty fast. Yeah, and then also the reputation kind of spilled into the magazines that you know Kevin Dubrow was so disliked that Ozzy punched him in the face at a wedding. Uh, you know, he had this reputation, and there was this weird thing where. You know, this band comes out, this singer clearly looks like he's getting older and he's losing his hair. And then the next album, he's got tons of hair. And it's like, yeah, what the fuck just happened? Well, that video for The Wild and the Young with yeah. Wink Martindale, uh, he had like a like a Was poodle. Wink Martindale in that, in that video? I yeah, he, that. he's like the guy at the end who's like, no rock and roll. <laughs> no rock and roll. Wow. And uh, that was like the beginning of the end. Wow. Uh, oh, that might have been the end. The end of the end. Wow. So, uh, but you know, who knows if uh, Randy Rhodes would have stayed in Quiet Riot, where they would have, you know, he might have had that guitar uh, influence, hero uh, vibe that, like, that would have carried it. Carried, you know, like, D which Martin. is what made Van Halen so fucking bulletproof. Yeah. Is that they had this guy who was a giant mouth. He was this big personality that critics love to hate. But he's standing next to a guy who's changing the way everyone's going to play guitar for the next 30 years. And they were bulletproof. You, you can't say this isn't a real band because the guy next to him is the greatest guitar player on the planet. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, and even with Hagar, they got bigger almost. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. That, that kind of bummed me out because uh, as a Van Halen fan, it bummed me out that that, that got... Um, I was surprised. I did like... Yeah, I did like the new Van Halen. I did like the songs. I did like the new energy. I mean, they just, it was weird. They were able to just, um, that they were able to redo everything and it worked, you know? They were suddenly this happy band of friends and it was a different type of sound, but it worked. It actually worked. You well, know? that mid 80s was like, I mean, even the Vinnie Vincent invasion had like the highest selling, uh, debut ever on chrysalis records i mean which shows you like what was selling wow no uh, shit. now they probably didn't have a lot of top selling acts but i mean two years later he was kicked out of the vinnie vincent invasion which yeah is really which is pretty funny and i love vinnie i'm obsessed with him but yeah it's funny that it just so happens that my two favorite kiss songs happen to be vinnie vincent songs which i didn't know um all hell's breaking loose i just think it's a really cool guitar driven song and uh, Unholy is just yeah. so ballsy. I mean, at the time that that came out, I was like, it, it was just really was impressive that a band that at the time was in their 40s or 50s was coming out with their hardest song ever. And I just mad respect for that. You but know? even on that album, I guess he was acting up again. And like, I think he was trying to angle to get back in. And, you know, he just, you talk about a moron. I mean,. Yeah, it's weird. That is a weird thing. Like you, uh, you know, it's very strange to me. Like I just saw this documentary about uh, Ginger Baker, and it's <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely fascinating to me that someone can be so good and so gifted at one thing, better than anybody else in the world, that they can be so good at one thing and a complete disaster of a human being at everything else. Yeah, I mean that's Benny. To to the T. I mean, he, here's a guy who was kicked out of Kiss three times in two years. Yeah, but he was so good they kept bringing him back. Yeah, and I mean, just he was great songwriter and you know, a little indulgent in his playing, but a great player. How and, long have you been doing the podcast now? Uh, probably a year and a half. Yeah, and what have uh, what have you learned and adjusted to in the year and a half that you started doing this? I mean, definitely. Uh, you know, the first. 15 I did I did in like two weeks I just said I'm going to do like 15 and then release them one a week so I can establish a pattern yeah and then I, I found out that that was probably a mistake because like someone like you would be plugging a show and it would be three <laughs> months ago sensitive. yeah, I, yeah mean, I did Mark Marin's podcast the what the fuck podcast and uh and um I had a bunch of dates I had a theater tour coming up 
and he and he's like um yeah we'll probably release this in the next couple of months i go oh well the theater tour that i that i was promoting is like in two it starts in two weeks and he goes oh okay well we'll you know and it didn't come out till like six months later but but yeah, that is, it, it's funny. Like if there's something that's time sensitive, yeah. That can I mean, be. he's like my mentor in terms of, I mean, in comedy and uh, just how a podcast gave him a second life. And, and uh, so I'm trying to do it as best I could. And trying to get celebrities. I mean, you know, it, you know, one tweet from Stephen Piercy got me literally a thousand uh, listens in five minutes. You're kidding. And, you know, like I think, you know, you have like, what like fifteen thousand followers? Right, uh, right, right. I mean, one tweet from you will, you know, c a couple hundred, you know, in five minutes, and wow. so it's just trying to. I mean, I I want to interview my friends, but you, you also, I guess, got to interview people who have followings if you want people to hear the thing. Yeah, but also if you have people with really good stories, get people to come on and tell some stories and tell some fucked up stories. Um, yeah, and Pete, you want people who talk a lot, like you talk a lot, and it's great. Yeah. Because, like, there's been a few where I talked a lot, and it's like, well, people want to hear about you. They don't, I mean. Right, well, sometimes people who don't know how to carry Well, I mean, like, Bobby <laughs> Brown was awesome. She yeah. was really super cool. But Bobby she, Brown definitely seems to have no filter. But like, she kind of, I think, she brought her boyfriend with her, so it was really hard to get into, hey, what was boning Tommy Lee like <laughs> when the guy's right? And he was a real cool guy. And, like, she tells this great story in the book. About she goes over to Dave Navarro's house, opens the door. Dave Navarro is boning one of her friends, her best friend at the time. Yeah, kicks her out, invites her in on the couch, and just starts jacking off. Really? And it's like I, 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 I would love to have asked about that story, but <laughs> I, you know, I'm trying to be respectful to the dude. And wow. So, uh, you know, but you're like the perfect combo for me. You're a friend, and you've got these great stories, and you're a metalhead, and you know, a lot of people don't really like that genre of music is it uh do you touch on that in every episode of the podcast do you touch on metal and i try to but you know with like uh some of the younger guests i've had on they, they don't know who vinnie vincent is they don't know who you know fucking don dockin is and what, what are like the biggest complaints that you get from people who listen to your show like what do they say they don't want you to do and what they do want you to do stop talking about bands that nobody likes anymore <laughs> I did about a 10-minute diatribe on Britney Fox. Yeah, did you really? Who I just, wow. I, I'm obsessed with that that band. I saw him at the Troubadour like two years ago playing in front of about 20 people. Wow. I didn't want to leave because I knew they'd say, hey, get back here. <laughs> I got to say, one of my favorite bands live is Cinderella. And I, when I was living in Seattle, I remember seeing Cinderella in front of... Um, about uh, probably about 50 people in a place that held uh, about a thousand maybe 800 a thousand a place called under the rail and i was kind of bummed out but when cinderella came up and started playing they played it like it was their most important gig i mean i couldn't believe how into it they were and tom Kiefer sounded amazing oh, he's and great. to this day it's one of the best live shows i've ever seen and and uh, i think about that when i'm doing a small crowd I, I i just think like i, I the, the only thing i can't wrap my brain around is when there's a small crowd to hear a comedian say like oh fuck this we, we should just cancel and it's like why I got people here who gives a shit like let's let's do something with it let's let's turn it into like hey this is my dream gig i've always wanted to perform in in front of an aa meeting or whatever just try to yeah turn it into something and have fun with it which you know when you're in new york and la and you're trying to get spots. You have to start out by doing those shitty spots on. I like know. A, a Monday night <laughs> in front of you don't have to tell four me, brother. people who don't give a shit, and that's what you got to do, man. And you have to learn how to. Once you master that, then you're good anywhere. Well, I don't think people. I'm not sure what it's like in New York, but in L.A., unless you have TV credits, you know, you're not going to get on at the clubs or, or the better shows, and so you have to do like. Basically, uh, upscale open mics in front of, you know, not very many people. And, uh, you know, that's when I usually let my, uh, you know, Britney Fox chunk out. <laughs> Just let it out. So is Britney Fox great in front of 20 people? I mean, it's 40. only one original member now and like three Mexican guys. So <laughs> Who 
Who's the original members? The Billy Childs, the bass player. No way! The singer is so embarrassed by Britney Fox. And this is why I love the 80s. Uh, his name is... He had a three name... A Dizzy th Dean Davidson. Dizzy Dean Davidson. Was so embarrassed by Britney Fox, like now, that he changed his name to like a like John Doe. <laughs> uh, that's not the name. <laughs> and he cut his hair and like won't talk about Britney Fox. He's like... Like I, I hear Tom Cruise in interviews. If you bring up the movie Losing It, which I love, that was his very first movie. Yeah, four kids going to Tijuana to get laid. Yeah, yeah, of course, I remember that. Uh, he'll walk out of the interview, and that's basically what Britney Fox, the singer, is like. Uh, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Wow, that's so, interesting. But they have a crossover with Cinderella because they're both from Philly. The man with the worst wig in rock, Michael Kelly Smith. Uh, was the original guitar player in Cinderella? So and really, then he, you know, I think they found Jeff Labar and and he, they he found. And he always it. wore a wig. I know it's, gonna it's pretty stupid. bad. Really, it's like looks like a, a a witch's broom. You know, dark hair dude. No blonde hair. Just just I mean, it's I, I don't know what really? he was thinking. And then, uh, you know, the probably my next guest, hopefully, uh, is Fred Curry, the drummer from Cinderella. Fred's always really easy going. He lives like two blocks from me, and he does. It's funny. I had the hockey game on uh, throughout this whole podcast. He does the music at the King Games. He does. Yeah. So if you ever are at a King game or watching one on TV, you'll always notice they're playing metal. Wow. And he's like, is he? Is there a live band, or he's playing? No, he uh, is the music coordinator. So it's it's just, uh, I guess the CD, CD, I guess, or you know, just no the sound, shit. the song. He's the DJ. And he does uh, movies and TV shows. So wow, yeah, I saw him uh, at some bowling event we did for TJ Martell, and uh, Fred was there for that. And um, super nice guy. Yeah, he's always been really, really easygoing, uh, really uh, down to earth. I remember one time um, being at a Cinderella concert, and I met a girl backstage. It was like Poison, Cinderella, and somebody else. And I saw two girls making out with each other <laughs> on the side of the stage. And it was at Jones Beach. There's like this VIP thing above the stage. And these two girls were uh, taking their tops off and practically going down on each other. And I remember walking over and saying, uh, hey, uh, uh, my name is Craig. I'm a comedian or whatever. And then one of the girls wouldn't look me in the eye. And the other one goes, yeah, she's blind. And I go, no. And they go, yeah. And I go, really, you're blind? She goes, yeah, I'm blind. And I'm like, and she was like a hot-looking stripper who was blind. And they said, uh, can you get us to meet Cinderella? And I knew the guys in Cinderella. And I was like, yeah, I can. It didn't dawn on me until later that someone told me, dude, you could have said, I am Cinderella. All right. Because she's blind. Well, that's what I would have done. But I brought her backstage, and I was like, and Fred was there. And I go, Fred, hey, this girl wants to meet you. And he goes, hi. And I go, she's blind, by the way. And he goes, really? The next time I saw him was like maybe six months later. I go, hey, do you remember that blind girl? And he goes, dude, that girl was like the horniest girl I've ever met in my life. <laughs> he was like. That's saying something. Yeah. Dude. Well, I, uh, I see him at the market uh, all the time right down the street. And he came up to me one night when I had my Kenny G locks. And he's like, Vivian, how are you doing? I'm like, Vivian, my name's Earl. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were Vivian Campbell. <laughs> he was goofing on you? No. He, he really he was thought, dead serious. He thought I was Vivian Campbell from uh, uh, White Snake. Well, yeah, he was White in White Snake, Snake yeah, and Death, Death Leopard. Leopard. D.O., White well, Snake, Death Leopard. Listen, while I have you, Fred, I just want to say you've got the greatest quote ever in music history. <laughs> and he looks at me kind of uh, weird and like, what did I say? I'm like... Well, this is right after Long Cold Winter, huge album. You know, you guys are at the top of the music, you know, world. And some interviewer said, "Well, Fred, what are your, what are your main goals coming up?" He's like, "I just want to be good enough to play on the album." Oh <laughs> my god! Wow. And he kind of looked at. He, I think he thought I was clowning on him, but I'm like, dude, I listen. I was at Arcade's first concert. Wow. At, at the With Troubadour. Wow. And he was also the drummer, the original drummer in the Vinnie Vincent Invasion for one day. No. Which is really why I want to get him on the show because apparently 
He gets the gig. They go down to rehearse, and Vinny was telling him to fuck the drums, make love to the drums, fuck the drums. And he said, "I've had this is it for me, dude." Wow. And he was in Guns N' Roses, uh, filling in for Adler. For Adler, when Adler had his like uh, uh, episodes. Uh, Yeah. I actually have a picture of Steven getting arrested in Chicago. When his arm was broken and a massive fight broke out um, at a bar down the street from where they were staying at the Hyatt in, in Chicago. And uh, that's a whole other story. I got more stories oh, to tell yeah. you. So this I got to come uh, back. Yeah, yeah. We got the tip of the iceberg, but we got to get into all the other you shit. You got a spot at the comedy store. This will be released tonight, but I don't think uh, people will have time. Uh, it won't be released in the next 20 minutes. So okay. you do have a spot at the comedy store yeah, you have to get to. What's your, I mean, Twitter? Uh, yeah, if you want to see some really fucked up pictures, come to my Instagram page. Uh, Instagram, it's Craig Gas Comedy. Craig Gas with two S's. And uh, Craig's an amazing dude. Twitter, same, Craig Gas Comedy. Yep, Craig Twitter. Gas Comedy on Twitter. Follow this man. He's, uh, he's a great comic, good friend. This has been uh, Inappropriate Earl. Follow us on, uh, or I guess not follow us, listen to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Leave a review. And, uh, you know, Craig, like Stephen Piercy said in 1984, will be back for more. Yeah!